Hey, it's Arlene Bunn filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast, America is officially banning TikTok downloads in the country, citing data collection concerns. We're going to talk about what that means, of anything, for the social media world going forward. Then we're going to speak to a legal expert about a lawyer who says his client contracted COVID after the border agency made him attend a hearing in person. Could this set a legal precedent? And finally, we're going to speak to an expert about how the COVID vaccine and conspiracy theory circulate. How can we beat them? How bad is it out there? Let's get going. What a week it's been. I mean, it's a tough enough, weird year and a little bit of a break in the summer and getting back to everything. And then this week, creep every day in Ontario. The case is coming up. And so it's Friday night and we usually feel really good on Fridays. And now if you're like me, you're feeling kind of funny. Like it's, it's kind of funny. You know what it kind of reminds me of? I had a friend who had somebody break into their house and the, they went in, they stole a few things and they never caught them. And for weeks after, she couldn't really sleep. She thought the burglar was coming back. And it really took a long time for her to think, okay, um, you know, I can put this out of my mind. But this is kind of the same feeling, don't you think? We had the panic and the, and I'm, I'm using a small P panic where we went, wow, the world has changed and it happened in one night. And then we got through the summer and we're learning things. And we all know, I mean, this has been one heck of a journey. And now the burglar might be coming back. We think of the burglar's back. And, the, and we have evidence. We kind of see, you know, stuff has been moved around and maybe they've already started to come back or make plans. Or I don't know how far I can go with that analogy. But it is that sense, that creepy sense that this is going to return. So um, it, the, the virus and the, the 400, over 400 cases today. And then every day we saw the big hunk of people who were spreading this virus were under 40. So we have really learned a lot and changed a lot. And we have a show. What we're going to do uh, tonight really is is uh, take stock of where we are. And I know that happens a lot. We're going to do it on a week, the whole week into some kind of context, because it was a week that really cemented. And you know what? I You could hear in the politicians' voices, and certainly Premier Doug Ford, the wariness and the the feeling of frustration. You could see it on their faces. What do they do? And now we know things are going back. We're not going forward. We're going back. And, you know, we're human. We, we had that summer and we're interacting with each other. And now we have to go back. So tonight we're going to discuss how far back do we go? Um, will there be an economic shutdown? I certainly don't think so because it was... It really hurt a lot. It certainly did. And we know more now. We know more now. And my big takeaway, and I, I'll say it a couple of times tonight, is one of the big things is to wear a mask. Because if you wear a mask, it gives you power. I know there's, you know, this whole movement out there that says, you know, live free or die or whatever, whatever it is. But there's freedom in power. And that is a power to control. And uh, there's some great things that are being written where we take a look at all the science of where we are now. And so when I talk about the mask, it's because we look at the trajectory of all the things we know. 
and all the things we started with when we thought, you know, I don't know, we were disinfecting groceries and all that stuff. And now if we wear a mask, things can really, really be helped. Also, what do we do about certain segments of the population who are not paying attention? What do we do about dangerous fake news? You know, you see Van Morrison. This was a killer for me, you know. Uh, into the Mystic. I mean, I could sing a few Van Morrison songs. And was, uh, when I was a kid, um, Brown Eyed Girl, my family would sing it to me because I had brown eyes when we were coming back from the beach. So every time I think about it, I, I think about being a little kid. And I know we all have those little feelings. And now, do I have to hear that stuff if, if, if old songs come on the radio? If we hear Van Morrison, I mean, he's up there in the classics. Are we going to think what kind of a crazy thing is he saying, but he's put out protest songs about live free, die, mass, all that stuff. Big, big news when it comes to the Supreme Court in the United States with Ruth Ginsburg passing away. And of course, what does this do? I mean, November the 3rd is the election day. We know what happened when President Obama wanted to replace somebody in the Supreme Court. And there was a lot more time than that. And what will the conservatives do this? Will, will they rally their cause? Will they, despite their protesting right now, will they try to squeeze somebody through? And will this, you know, get the Democrats with even more wind under their wings? We just don't know how this is going to affect things. But you bet a lot of people in the United States and on both sides are talking about this. There's a lot of meetings and a lot of Zoom meetings going on after iconic Supreme Court Judge Ruth Ginsburg has passed away that we knew we she had we she had cancer and she was very brave and was saying that she was making it through and here we go so we take a deep breath and see how this is going to affect this very important election the president of the United States in this important election who wants to get reelected well he's announced that the United States is going to ban WeChat TikTok and they say it's for national security reasons joining me to help us understand this is Philip Mai, who's a director in communications, Ryerson Social Media Lab. Philip, thank you for being here. Hi there. All right. You know, is this really for national security reasons? Because there's a lot of concerns about other social media. I mean, this is a president who was pretty embarrassed with TikTok and those tickets and his rally in Tulsa. What do you think the motivation is? Well, there's actually a lot of different motivation that might be one of them, but we, I guess we'll never know for sure. Uh, it was a bit of an embarrassment for him, especially the media play up that uh, whole thing about uh, kids on TikTok trying to basically take all his the mm-hmm. tickets away from his uh, rally. Um, but the action by the U.S. is actually against TikTok and WeChat is actually um, – Similar stuff have been done by the U.S. against a company like um, MoneyGram, for example, was going to be sold to a Chinese company a few years ago, and the U.S. government stopped that because they were worried that uh, American financial data would end up in the hands of the Chinese government. So they um, killed that deal. They also forced a Chinese company to sell um, a gay dating app um, and um, ha- they had to sell it to an American company, basically over the same reason. The, the only thing is that TikTok is basically the biggest example of this right now. So it's a, it's a long line of um, actions they've taken over the years 
to try and protect uh, American users' data. They do, and they have a lot of support for that. It's something that's being considered when we talk about privacy and data in China. It is a very real concern. This is also part of the fabric of um, American life, of um, North American life, of uh, lots of different countries' lives as we look at how important social media is. What are the negatives if they do this? Well, I mean, the negative is that um, it's preventing uh, Americans from being able to choose um, a communication service that they obviously like. Um, Over 100 million or so, I believe, uh, in the U.S. are using it. Like here in Canada, we just did a survey at our lab um, at Ryerson University. We asked 1,500 Canadians uh, back in April, May timeframe whether they use TikTok. And 15% out of the 1,500 said that, yes, they do. It's now... um, basically in the top 10 most popular social media app in Canada. And if you think about it, two years ago, the app was not even on anybody's radar. So if that growth continues, there could be a time when, you know, it can become a ubiquitous app just like Instagram or Facebook. And that's the direction that it was uh, going. So we'll see what happens if the ban does go through. And it was. I mean, the momentum, as you say, was incredible. I mean, TikTok was replacing... Of Facebook in so so many ways. I mean, uh, you know, the benefits of this, though, is there is real concern about security. However, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to well, cherry pick... This, yeah. Sorry, the concern at this point is hypothetical. Mm-hmm. There's no proof that they are doing mm-hmm. any of this. What they're trying to prevent is a future in which so many uh, Americans and so many Westerners are using an app uh, that's controlled by uh, a country that have a history of not always respecting um, privacy and human rights. Um, so basically, they're trying to future-proof this. Um, so in some ways, people can argue that it's, um, the action is unfair because basically they're trying to be uh, shown to be uh, guilty before um, uh, anything was done. It's a you know? it's a preemptive strike, as yeah, you say, basically. but it does yeah. call attention to the concern that is out there with all these right. things. You know, yeah. uh, using these social media apps, been the wild, wild west, it has been part of freedom. What does this do to the psychology behind it about, you know, being able to communicate and the freedom of social media because all around us here in Canada, everywhere there is concern about regulating it, that you, who decides. And here we have some decisions being made. Well, yeah, this, well, the throne uh, speech is coming up very soon. And there's a lot of rumors going around that there will be new regulation coming and new taxes coming. Um, so we'll see what will actually be delivered, but there's talks of basically, um, forcing, um, Websites like Facebook, Twitter, and so on that uh, feature links to news sites to pay for those links. So we'll see whether that come to fruition or not. How do you um, feel? But, how do yeah. you feel about the future of these? I mean, as governments like the United States move in this area, is there is there a danger here? Yeah, it sets a dangerous precedent mm-hmm. because uh, American companies have enjoyed the benefit of uh, basically um, an open world where they can come in and basically set up shop and um, convince the citizens of those countries to uh, use these apps. But 
by um, banning TikTok, it could potentially make it difficult for the next decade, uh, in the next decade, for companies um, like Snapchat, uh, Instagram, and uh, Twitter, and so on, because other countries will basically look at what the U.S. is doing and say, you know what, we also want to ban, let's say, Instagram from uh, our country unless you do X. You got and, it. And, uh, you got and it. Brazil can do that. India can do that. So it's not just China that we have to worry about. Um, so it's giving with one hand and taking away with another. By um, restricting TikTok, they will give um, you know Western social media company a temporary reprieve. But like I said, other countries um, that also have big markets like India, like Brazil, uh, and also Western Europe will look at it and say, wait, 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 wait. Uh, we don't have any of these social media companies. Mm-hmm. They're all American companies, mm-hmm. and they've been able to operate uh, very freely uh, without any um, uh, restriction from us. So guess what? If you want access to our people and our market and our advertising dollars, we'd like you for you to do X. And if they say no, they're going to say, well, the U.S. government did it with China. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to me, it's, um, it's a mixed bag. I see why they, the U.S. is trying to do this, but at the same time, um, it's basically in the end, I think it might split up the Internet where some of the Internet will only be connected to Chinese sites. So, for example, China mm-hmm. is making big move into Latin America and South America, and they're making big move into Africa. So I can see a time when uh, those countries will connect to the Chinese Internet because basically – it will cause a split of the internet where some nodes on the internet will connect to only nodes, let's say in the Western world and so on. So basically we're setting up um, what is becoming a digital Berlin wall. And that could have implication for democracy simply because if you live in one of those part of the world, that's not connected to this part of the world, we might not be aware of what's going on there until it's too late. So, I mean, those are some of the long-term implications of this. You got it, because, you know, as we talk about this, uh, we're already looking at Facebook and pressure, and there is some suspicion on arrangements that may or may not have been made. And we can watch that happen all around the world. It used to be a sign of freedom. It might not be so in the future. Philip Mai, thank you for joining us. You have a great Friday night and a great weekend. No problem. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Philip Mai is a director in communications of Ryerson Social Media Lab. A lot to think about there. One thing's for sure, things are not the same. We're back for Alex Pearson on this Friday night. I'm Arlene Bonin. You know, one of the things that keeps coming up as we get through this pandemic is... You know, are there going to be legal cases? Who's responsible for what? And there's a lot of speculation about workplaces. If people have to go back, are they going to be held accountable? We're even hearing stories about people having to sign documents saying they will not hold people accountable. Now we have another story that kind of shines a light maybe on the beginning of something. A lawyer has said his client tested positive for covid after reckless border agency people made him attend a hearing in person. Sign of the times of our future. Let's ask Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert. Joseph, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, Arlene. How are you? 
I am good. This kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? We've been hearing all these warning signs. How is this going to get legal? What do you make of this story? It looks like this lawyer is trying to say his client's positive test is on the hands of a border agency. Yeah, possibly. I mean, as I was reading through the material, um, it's unclear where this gentleman contracted COVID-19. It could have been while attending this hearing, or it could have been prior to that and he was asymptomatic. So it raises a number of issues. And it's similar to lawsuits which have been commenced uh, over the past several months regarding uh, people getting sick and possible negligence by employers or organizations. So uh, in Ontario, the premier had been considering the passing of good faith mm-hmm. immunity uh, for organizations and for government. So that, you know, if it comes into fruition for, by the government action, may have a, a serious implication for anybody wanting to do government, an organization, or an employer. And in this case, if this uh, poor gentleman contracted while attending the hearing, it would have that impact on him as well. It's tough. Where does your legal mind go on this? On one hand, you know, if people are being forced to work in certain circumstances, it would seem very unfair that they cannot hold people accountable. On the other hand, it could be a quagmire. Where do you weigh in on this, on what's fair and right and legal? You know, you raise good points. I mean, we need safe environments for people to work and also for people to attend. So, for example, as a lawyer going to court, you know, I want some assurances that the courts have put in proper protocols and measures to make sure that uh, we're safe and our clients are safe when they attend. Um, but on the flip side of this is, if lawsuits were allowed to go forward, um, you know, by the hundreds or more, companies could be facing tremendous or organizations tremendous possible liability and in insurance issues um, and may become uninsurable in the future. And so the economic impact of lawsuits uh, could be outweighing any type of benefit that we'd have as a society for an individual to have recourse. I I think I like the term uh, from a legal perspective and, and from a business perspective when the premier talks about good faith immunity. If an employer organization is acting in good faith based upon clear guidelines provided by uh, medical experts and by the government. So, you know, you've got mask wearing, there's proper cleaning going on several times a day, uh, there's social distancing. You know, if, there, if these measures are being taken so that uh, an organization, company, or government agency is doing everything they can based upon good science, then it's hard to think of them as as necessarily negligent. And I I think those types of lawsuits should be discouraged. The the flip side is, without this legislation, the courts themselves may step in and decide in certain cases that um, if people are acting on good faith and doing all they can do, uh, and there's an economic need to remain open and to have employees or to continue with hearings, uh, that, that companies and agencies would not be liable. 
it's tough. You know, I was talking to even a relative in the UK who had to go back to work and felt that it really wasn't safe and didn't know whether to quit or go back or take legal action. And what you're saying is true, but we kind of don't know. This is this is this is a precedent in many ways, isn't it? We've had little little looks at this when we've looked at workplace safety. And, you know, everything from, you know, whether there's asbestos in a building or whether or not there were protocols. But it's going to take a while before we get those protocols. I agree. I think we're in a new era right now, or as they love, the new normal. And so Mm -hmm. we're going to have to develop the law uh, to try and protect individuals and protect um, ourselves as a community, but also deal with the economic impact it can have on governments. Uh, and on companies. And, you know, it's interesting that with the back to school, the first school to close down, I think, in Ontario was in Pembroke due to uh, a teacher who contracted uh, COVID in the community and uh, unfortunately was not following protocols when in the school. And so what does that mean for the children who might be exposed and their families? Is the Board of Education liable? I mean, there's a lot of issues here at play um, that, that we're going to have to work through but I think the idea of having good faith uh, as a type of, um, you know, goalpost to to measure what would be separating what really is gross negligence, uh, where you create an unsafe environment versus somebody who's just following protocol and, and it just happened. You know, like it could happen if you're in a supermarket and accidentally come in contact with somebody. So these are very difficult issues to grapple with now because some people are extremely worried and rightly so, especially those who are in the vulnerable uh, sectors so, such as age or, you know, if they have underlying conditions. So this is a tough, tough issue going forward. Here's another aspect that makes it even tougher. The protocols are changing. One of the things we're talking about tonight is how do you really get this this virus? We're learning more. You know, having hand sanitizer may have been one of the clear protocols when this happened. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe as we talk about masks and we see how important they are, the, the rules about mask wearing, could get legal. So we're kind of learning as we go along. So it's tough to say what is safe and what kind of protocols a business laid out there. Arlene, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, if we look at it from a larger perspective, we've seen some blowback from the, from people in the community about how they feel that their rights have been violated by certain requirements, you know, masking for whatever Mm -hmm. reason has taken on this type of, uh, emotional response by some, not so much in Canada, but we still have it. Or, you know, was the lockdown too much? People's civil liberties have been, you know, curtailed. These are really difficult issues to work through because we've got to balance individual rights and and interests versus really the health of our society and a a common good. And you're right, the science is evolving. Uh, You know, what are proper protocols? What measures we have to take to protect? Especially now when you see the number today, I think is 401 things will change it's a dyna- as they learn more about the virus what we do to protect ourselves and each other will evolve as well it is you know and this has opened up a whole new world from a legal point of view how concerned are you I mean, because so many of these aspects are waving back and forth yeah i think you know if there's a fair amount of transmission because of environments in businesses um, and in agencies or other types of organizations, 
there could be a massive amount of civil litigation, which could be crushing to a system that was already slow mm-hmm. uh, in Ontario way before the pandemic. And I, I think what's really important here is that that agency uh, was not technology savvy enough to be able to provide these virtual hearings by Zoom or um, with the Microsoft product, uh, Teams, which, which we mm-hmm. use as well. So the fact that they can't do that is, is not acceptable to the public, and nor should it be acceptable. Uh, you know, the courts have had worked hard to implement virtual attendance where it can be done, and so should this agency, if their office is located at whatever the address is on, on Airport Road, and they can't do it there because of some wiring issue or something else, too bad. Lease a new facility and get it up to speed right away. You got it. Here we go. We could end up miles from here. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio, legal expert. Thank you for your mind this Friday night. We appreciate it. Thank you, Arlene. Always a pleasure. As we listen to Joseph, it really uh, does create a whole scenario of where this whole thing is going to go. And we don't know. It's really hard to live our lives like this, isn't it? Hmm. We're going to have more answers coming up. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene Bunn. In short break, and we will return. Happy Friday night. This is Global News Radio. We're back for Alex Pearson. I'm Arlene Bynan. And, and, you know, as we talk about this virus, here's something that's uh, haunting us along with the virus. Misinformation. One of the things about this pandemic, it has brought into focus a lot of stuff we knew that was hanging around and was a danger. And now we see from a health perspective, the damaging stain of misinformation. It's happening on social media. It's happening from politicians and It is getting tougher and tougher to eradicate. Here's an example. There is even a member of the Kennedy family who is now being known as a super spreader of hoaxes. And I'm sure he did not think he was starting out this way. It was all about vaccines so many years ago. To help us out, Tim Caulfield, professor of health law and science policy, speaker, TV host, author of a book that's about to come out, Relax, Damn It. Tim Caulfield, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Tim, we've talked about this before, and now this is getting serious. We want to use kind of a um, a Kennedy to explain how these things happen. And uh, boy, I remember when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. started this anti-vax stuff, and and people didn't pay much attention to him. And then it was the landscape of lefties. Now you've got right-wing extremists jumping on the same thing. How do you view how this anti-vax movement got started? It, it really is incredible how, let's, you know, let's call them fringe ideas, and they really were kind of fringe ideas, have become uh, quite mainstream. And uh, he is one of, as you said in the intro, one of the super spreaders. There have been uh, several studies that have shown that he is one of the prominent voices uh, in, this, in this sphere. And I think part of it is because he comes with a degree of, of mm-hmm. credibility, right? He has name recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I don't know if you've had the opportunity or <laughs> to hear him speak. It can be very frustrating. But he, he really pushes his, his message in an effective manner. And it does tremendous damage. We're seeing 
the uh, you know increase in vaccination hesitancy. We're seeing the surveys that have been done all around the world showing people's intention to get the COVID vaccine decreasing. And I really believe, I really believe it's the result of individuals like this and, and the spread of misinformation. It's really tough, isn't it? People are allowed to put forth new information. And heck, I got to tell you, I've broken a few stories from people who sounded like nuts at the beginning and they were telling the truth. What's different about all this? You know, you know, I, I think, um, that, that, look, the, the stuff that he's spreading um, is patently wrong, right? There's, there's no ambiguity there. There's no sort of argument within the scientific community about some of the, the stuff he's pushing. It's, it's complete and utter misinformation. And that's what's so frustrating about it. Yes, you know, in a lot of domains with, with COVID in particular, the science is still evolving. There's still a degree of uncertainty. And I think people get frustrated when the, when, when the recommendations shift, right? That's not what is happening here, right? This is full-out misinformation, um, conspiracy theories, uh, and it's doing, it's doing real damage. So, you know, that's the difference, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That really is the difference. And, and if I just give you another example of how these fringe ideas have become normalized, 28% of Americans, 28% believe the hardcore conspiracy theory that Bill Gates started the, this pandemic so he could... Uh, put microchips in individuals to monitor their behavior. That's incredible, right? That's a really fringe conspiracy theory that now 28% of Americans believe that's a normalization. It's true. I read somewhere uh, that there was a vast majority, I forget exactly how much, um, members of the Republican Party believed all that uh, pedophilia Pizzagate and still do what is it? Is it the credibility of people who started it with this anti-vaxxer, like a, a Kennedy? And how much does a president that doesn't say no, let's listen to science, how much has that changed things? Uh, I think it, I, all of the above. All of the above. You know, I think there's a lot going on here. You know, one is just the degree of uncertainty, uh, the, the continuing evolution of the science. You know, that makes room for these alternate narratives, right? Uh, the other thing I think is that that there has been trust issues on the science side, right? You know, there's been retracted papers, there's been less than ideal science communication. Uh, that you know, breakdown in trust also makes room for these kinds of conspiracy theories. And and to be honest with you, I also think that COVID fatigue, totally understandable, right? Totally understandable, plays a role here too. People are getting fed up, right? They're getting they're moving from fear to anger and frustration, and I think that also makes room for uh, an embrace of conspiracy theories. It is, and it's also a lot to do with the celebrity factor. If people know a name, they listen to them, and they listen to them. I mean, they may, just because somebody, they buy uh, their music, now they're listening to stuff they say about things they know nothing about. Oh, so frustrating. You know, just today, Van Morrison, you know, came know. out with ridiculous comments. I'm a big Van Morrison fan. I used fan. to love sure Van Morrison, Into the Mystic and oh, Brown Eyed Girl. That song, as that broke. I know, so so frustrating, you know, the Oasis, you know, on and on and on, right? And, and, and people may say, oh, who listens to those individuals? But you're right, it matters, right? Because it just puts it out there in the ether. There was a really interesting study from Oxford that found that, that of all that misinformation out there, about 20% of it originates with a prominent individual, so a celebrity, you know, Donald Trump, you know, uh, a sports star. But 69% of what all of us spread on social media comes from prominent individuals. So that shows us that it's a top-down, celebrities talking about it, bottom-up, us spreading their nonsense phenomenon. So, you know, we've got to stop both ends of that equation. 
Okay, how do you do this? I know that you've been behind this and and you're you're working daily now on trying to combat it. We're talking about it. People have got it out in the open and you're making any headway. Um, you know, I, I think this is an incredibly complicated problem. So what we're trying to do is move the needle. So what we need to do is when we see misinformation, we need to debunk it. And yes, that works. I know maybe people will say, oh, it's, it's futile. No, there's good data to, su- to suggest it works. So, you know, you use good science, you highlight the, the rhetorical devices that are used to push the misinformation. And it's also important to use creative uh, creative strategies and be nice and authentic you know let's let's not shame people but on the other side of the uh, equation of you know those individuals who are spreading we really need to encourage canadians encourage everyone to think before they share and i know that sounds ridiculously simple but but there's evidence to, to suggest if you can just encourage people to embrace accuracy to pause before they share we can reduce the spread of misinformation and pause and check. And you say be nice and don't shame people. How do you get tough and also welcome people and try to keep their minds open? I know psychologists have been weighing in on this, and I'm always fascinating on how people will accept new information. You know, it is tough not to to be snarky. I, you know, I have to remind myself I can be kind of snarky on social media, too. I, I think I was snarky with Van Morrison earlier today. <laughs> All right. We accept your apology. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine with that. Um, You know, when it's someone who's pushing something, a product or a celebrity, you know, trying to build a brand, I think it's okay to be kind of snarky. But when it's, you know, an individual who's just trying to do the right thing, trying to find the right answer, there's a research that shows that, you know, if you're nice, if you're authentic and you try to be empathetic or try to understand their position, they're more likely to listen. And no surprise there, but it's good to remind ourselves of that. Uh, And and the other thing is to use a narrative and and to understand where they're coming from. Uh, That's also, uh, you know, really, really important important. And the last thing I'll say, if I can, if, it's a, if this individual is a hardcore denier, you're not going to mm-hmm. change their mind. You know, don't waste your psychic energy on, on those individuals. Your message should really be for the general public. And that, you know, that's, that's the target audience, the general public, not those hardcore deniers. Yeah, that, that's the point, isn't it? Because you have to make that decision. But it has become political. It may affect an, our health here. I mean, the stakes are high. It may affect an election as well. Uh, the stakes are really high, and I think it's also important to remind ourselves of that. You know, misinformation has killed people, it's hospitalized people, it's created financial loss, it's skewed health and science policy, and it's just added to this chaotic information environment. So this, this really does matter, and I, and I think it needs to become a, uh, a global uh, policy priority. Tim Caulfield, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Connie. Thank you so much. Tim is professor of health, law, and science policy and author of a book about to come out, Relax, Damn It. We will have more, so don't relax too much. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene Bunn, and this is Global News Radio. That's it for the podcast today. You can hear On Point Live on the radio Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 p.m. I'm Arlene Bunn, filling in for Alex Pearson.